my goodness, we've got guests. You know what that means. It's another Masterclass episode on Studio Class. Happy New Year, divas. I am so happy we are back together again. And here we are, it's a Masterclass episode. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> so I am so thrilled to have Leanne Mizleski on for our Masterclass episode today. So let me tell you a little bit about Leanne and then we are gonna just jump right in and get to the conversation. So Leanne Mizleski, Vice President of Opera and Classical Programming, joined Wolf Trap in 2006 and has cultivated new partnerships and programs to uphold the company's widespread acclaim as the country's most venerated summer training program for emerging artists. She oversees all aspects of Wolf Trap Opera, an artist-centric program whose alumni are not only singing in every opera house in the nation, but also in the most prestigious houses in the world, including Metropolitan Opera, La Scala, Vienna Staatsoper, Komische Oper Berlin, Sydney Opera House, and Deutsche Oper Berlin. She is participated in the casting and programming of operatic productions for 15 years and has heard over 8,000 live auditions. Actually, I think even in the episode, we talk about the fact that it's more than that now. <laughs> She's a frequent adjudicator for competitions and has been a visiting virtual lecturer at a number of universities. She conceived of the Untrapped series of programming in 2016, which has featured artistic partnerships with Shakespeare Theater, Strathmore, Children's National Medical Center, Phillips Collection, and so much more. She also has an ongoing partnership with the National Orchestra Institute. In addition, Leanne oversees Wolf Trap's classical music programming, which includes chamber music at the Barnes. She started the artistic advisor position for the series with nationally recognized artists, so including Emerson String Quartet, Jonathan Biss, Laura St. John, Wuhan, all of these awesome, awesome artists. She also oversees the long-standing partnership between Wolf Trap and the National Symphony Orchestra. Leanne is a graduate of Carnegie Mellon University and the Maryland Opera Studio at the University of Maryland. She is co-chair of the Artistic Services Committee and serves on the executive board of Opera America. So divas, are you ready for this? I am so excited. Let's dive in and jump in to this masterclass episode with Leanne Mizleski. Wonderful. Leanne, welcome to Studio Class. I am so, so thrilled that you are here today. I'd love to kick us off with this masterclass episode by having you just introduce yourself a little bit, just kind of tell me what you're thinking about these days, any of that kind of good stuff. <laughs> sure. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. I'm so flattered to be on the, on your podcast and to be able to talk about some of these things. Um, Boy, what I'm what I'm thinking about, we uh so I'm at Wolf Trap and we finished a very big audition tour. And that's kind of been on my mind a lot because we had a record number of people come out to sing. And so it's it's one of those dichotomies where I'm looking at, you know, audience numbers and programming, and then I'm looking at interest and in people who are like into this very weird, very crazy art form that we love so much. Yeah. Um, and I'm so curious to see how these two things start to align because sometimes they feel like they are quite separate, the desire for the, for the work and to be in the industry and then the patron and audience appetite for some things. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's been on my mind a lot, but I will say that, um, having that many applicants to kind of look at. Um, I just wish I had so many more projects and so right. many more things to be able to do because there were so many people that did really great auditions that we weren't able to bring because we just don't have as many projects as there are talented people. So absolutely. I, I hear you. It, it's the hardest part of of being on any presenting side is realizing that you're surrounded, you know, by artists in all these different roles that you're like, I would love to work together. <laughs> I know, you know, and it's funny too, having, having been an artist and having studied and as a singer myself, it always does put me back a little bit in that, in that mind frame of what it felt like to be putting myself out there so much. And I just have so much admiration and respect for folks who are actively pursuing this, this goal and this dream. So I am, yeah. I wish I had so many more opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> Leanne, could you tell me a little bit more about, about that path? And I'm, I'm really curious if you can talk about both like, well, I was, you know, I was uh, pursuing mm -hmm. singing and I was doing school and then I did these things, but I want to hear, yes, the, the timeline or the kind of milestones, mm -hmm. but also some of the 
thought process as you were going through those? What, yeah. what inspired you to pursue music? And then what inspired you to kind of take on these different opportunities that you found yourself doing? That's such a great question. Um, so I'll take it the whole way back. I got started in music because my folks got a big grand upright beater piano for free when I was a kid. And I was a fairly um, mischievous might be too kind of word for what I was at the time. Um, and so my babysitter, her mother was a piano teacher. So she started trying to teach me little things on the piano when I was about three. So music for a long time was that avenue that I had to express myself. And even when I, like I was in choirs and I played violin and I played French horn, but even when I didn't necessarily want to study, my folks were really smart about putting me in front of musicians who would challenge me. Even when I wasn't taking lessons, I had a great neighbor, Dr. Clyde Brzee, who had a beautiful grand piano yeah. And I was in middle school and I was not taking lessons anymore. <laughs> and yeah. so he would just pop something up on that piano when I would go over to visit and I would try it and it would be a little bit too hard for me. And he'd be like, well, I mean, if you want, I mean, if you want to work on it, you can. And I'd be like, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess maybe I'll take it home. And then like a week later, I'd be like, <laughs> so like they were, they were, I'm sure they were all in cahoots, but it, was, it, it worked, you know, because it kept right. me so interested and so challenged and it still was it was the way that I could access those emotions that I didn't have words for yet yeah and so I applied for only one college wow uh, as a singer I applied to everybody else as a writer I was going to be a writer and then I got into the to the school for um the music program and I was like I must go <laughs> having any idea of what that actually meant or like really nothing except that that meant that I could spend all day like doing the stuff that I really enjoyed right um and part of the deal with that is my parents insisted I get a teaching certificate as part of that because feeding yourself is important um and so I went to a school that was a conservatory based and it was fairly, in many ways, it was fairly competitive. And that was not a way that I had ever approached the art form before, right? It was a means of self-expression for me. And so if somebody really wanted this role that I thought I was great at, if they really wanted it, I mean, go ahead. <laughs> Which is not really the best, um, like it's like it's not a competitive mindset, you know, like it's not like, um, and I got out of school and I finished my teaching certificate and I taught for a number of years. And then, um, and then 9-11 happened when I was teaching and I was like, you know, I, I think not unlike the pandemic, everyone was kind of rethinking their, like their priorities, um, what they wanted to be. It was a big reset moment. And so when that happened, I decided that Maybe I wanted to go back to school. Maybe I wanted to try the singing thing again. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up in a graduate program with a wonderful mentor and a, a really great teacher. And I loved rehearsal. Yeah. I loved rehearsal. I love rehearsal. I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't love the actual performing. No. <laughs> like, that was not like that. Like the rehearsal period and that exploration period was so much more fun than the than the moment. Um, and then I changed Fox my first year and got married and my goodness. to figure out that the, that the lifestyle was, if you were doing well, you were not going to be home very much. And I mean, I liked the guy, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, you were like, I mean, we got married cause we liked each other. <laughs> so it, it wasn't that I didn't love singing, but it seemed like that lifestyle was not going to be um, a great fit for me. Um, I wanted to be, I wanted to have roots in the community. I wanted to know my neighbors. There were things like that that were as important to me as the professional thing. So I was lucky. Um, Leon Major, who was the head of that program, kind of helped me in my second year of my master's to start experimenting with different things. Yeah. Um, and I did some directing and I did some music directing and, uh, one of the projects that he gave me as my advisor is he was directing a piece at Wolf Trap called Volpone, which was a new commission by Mark Campbell and uh, John Musto. Yeah. He needed a director's assistant and they needed some help in the office. Mm -hmm. I was like, I mean, okay. And it was one of those light bulb moments when you realize, I was like, 
I could be involved at a very high level of art making without practicing a single minute. <laughs> yes. Um, so, you know, I, I got involved with this organization as a, an intern when I was in grad school yeah. um, and joined the staff. I was still singing quite a bit around town, but I joined the staff in 2006. And it really was that first audition tour um, that fall, fall of 2006, where I was hearing, first of all, I had to listen to things differently. So, you know, in school, when I was seeing my friends, I was there listening to encourage and they're listening to like, be supportive and enjoy their performance. And it was a very different kind of listening. And I remember being in a room and one of the people on the panel, when we were on a break, I was like, wow, everyone sounds so good. And the person looked at me and said, they are all under pitch. And I was like, what? <laughs> because the performance had been compelling enough that I was not tracking mm -hmm. the intonation to the same level that that they were. And I was like, oh, I am not, I'm not doing this right. Um, or you and so needed to yeah. refine those metrics, those qualities that you were listening for. Right. And so, and the thing that really gave me some peace of mind as a singer making the transition into admin was that like there was a like there was a continuum that we heard in every city right there were folks who maybe got in and maybe weren't quite ready yeah there were rock stars yeah and then there was everyone else who was kind of making progress some things were great some things needed work but everyone was kind of in this like various parts in this middle and we keep comments for everybody so we could see like who had kind of shifted up or shifted back or where they were kind of coming in on that continuum. And I was like, oh, I know where I would be on that continuum. Mm -hmm. And I would not be a rock star, but I want to work with rock stars. Yeah. I want to make art at that level. So yeah. that made it made me feel like maybe the best place for me to be would be in support of yeah. the art making rather than being on the stage. And you know, that was, I mean, that's 2006 and I've kind of started at the bottom and worked my way up. Um, but I have that community. I have that family, like all the things that were really important to me. And I still get to spend so much time with opera and with musicians. Mm -hmm. And okay. like, so that's really, it really has been a best of both worlds. I love that. Yeah. I think that's such an important part. I, in all of the conversations that I have, you know, with professionals and we talk about, well, were you aware that like the life would look like that if you were performing at the level that you wanted? And sometimes those things can be in conflict with each other and yeah. it's okay to, to really think through, you know, what do I want my life to look like? And what are all the ways that I can be in music at exactly the way that I want to be? So, you know. Yeah. And I think too, to that point, there is like, there are things that I loved about music school yeah. that are still through lines in the way that I do my job now. Like I love that collaborative aspect. I love everyone getting together to share ideas. I love like breaking a project down into different parts and like see it, then everyone coming together and seeing how it all starts to knit together. I don't love being in a practice room all by myself for hours and hours at a time, <laughs> you know, like that's not like, I mean, I, it was enjoyable, but it was not something that like for me, music was like communal. I was doing it with people. I was like, even like my nerdy high school friends were all like reading musicals, like out of the book together, like play, taking turns playing piano and singing like that community aspect was so important for me. Yeah. Um, and having a team where we get to do that together. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny. I, there, I, I was talking to a friend just today who was part of the program and now is um, a therapist yeah. and works especially with singers um, it, wow. from Berlin. He's based in Berlin now. Um, and just seeing him as a singer, you know, probably, oh God, almost 20 years ago. Yeah. When he was, and then seeing him in this new career where he just lights up when he talks about it. Mm -hmm. But that there are so many parts of who he was as a singer that have transferred into this new position. So I, there are, you know, I think, as people are thinking about where they're going to end up, like they think, oh, I've been in this, I've been doing this for so long. I can't possibly not do it because I, if, if I do, I will have wasted all that time. Yeah. And that I think is not the case at all. Like there's um, 
boy, years ago, I did this, uh, I had a blog called Indirect Roots, and I think it's still up, yeah. where looking at people who started as performers and ended up somewhere else and what that through line is. Yes. Um, and I find that super interesting because I feel like sometimes as, as musicians, they're like, if you, you, you focus on that one thing so hard and you start to tell yourself that there's nothing else that you can do, but those skills are super transferable. There's ways to find the things that you love about music in other fields. And I just got lucky that the other field just happened to be the other side of the table. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was wondering on this podcast, we talk a lot about like nuts and bolts and we also talk about like inner work, you know, we kind of talk about both of those things. And, and I'm wondering if you might share, because you mentioned this, that feeling of sunk cost fallacy, you know, I've put all of this into it. I can't possibly change now. Or I'm just wondering if you would talk to me a little bit about dealing with sunk cost fallacy and or dealing with those those fears of oh I failed at this thing that I set out to do rather than seeing it as part of this longer story this longer narrative yeah I mean I do feel like oftentimes we because there's not a real clear path for singers we try to create one based on the most direct path that we see, mm-hmm. right? And the most high profile path that we see. I'm going to go to this school. I'm going to do this graduate program. I'm going to get into this young artist program. I'm going to get management here. And then I'm going to sing at these houses. And then I'm going to be happy. Yeah. Right. right? <laughs> but I think too, like it is, like, I mean, it's a hard profession, like any, like, you know, any profession where you get the immediate feedback that you do as a singer, like, I mean, the people in the finance office here do not get that kind of direct feedback. With <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I mean, do you know that. <laughs> you have to have that. Um, you have to grow a very thick skin and you have to have a really um, strong inner compass. Yeah. But like, there are times where you're looking around to say, hey, my things have shifted for me. Like, this was great when I was in school and when things were going this way, but either now I have a family and now I'm away all the time, or now I am, you know, not sure what rep I should be singing because my voice has grown, but I can't figure out where I fit or I can't get the gigs that I want, or I'm not finding the projects that are interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it becomes like, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to have like, to, to find those um, friction points like that. Uh, So I think that there's, I'm trying to say two different things and I'm trying to figure out how to do it. <laughs> I um, feel you entirely. <laughs> so I think, you know, there are a couple of things. One, it is a long game. Mm-hmm. So, and there are like ups and downs. So like, if it is something that you feel like this is really where I'm happiest is on that stage, then you probably owe it to yourself to find a way to keep putting yourself out there because, you know, it is a little bit of a numbers game. There are X number of people coming out of conservatory every year. And then, it, you know, there's attrition as far as who stays in the field and who doesn't. So some of it is like continuing to work on your craft, continuing to hone those skills, getting feedback from people you trust that is helpful to you, mm-hmm. um, taking feedback from people that you respect and not everybody mm-hmm. because like mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of feedback to be had, but if you don't know <laughs> how to filter it, it's not helpful. Right. Exactly. Um, so I think that's part of it. Like just knowing that, like, if it doesn't happen for you when you're 24, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Or if it doesn't happen for you at 34, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It just depends on how important that is and how, whether you're able to kind of keep it going. And that's, I, I don't want to underestimate that because that can be a, a pretty big lift. Yeah. Um, but I think the sunk cost fallacy comes into play where you're not necessarily as invested in it and you don't know where else to go and you feel like you've trained for so long that you don't have anything else to offer. And I feel like we don't do a great job of helping people through that transition. Like there's, um, I want to say dance USA, like there is a program for dancers where like, once you hit a certain place where you age out of ballet and that kind of, like there is a training and support for those folks to figure out what that next move is because they physically can't handle doing that kind of work past a certain age. And we don't have anything like that necessarily for musicians to explore the things that they are interested in outside of the concert space or the the opera space. And like, when I think about 
folks who have come through our program who have made that transition, there are a couple of really interesting like paths that they have examples for. There are any number of folks who stay connected to the industry, like directors, conductors, admin, um, lots of folks who kind of stay in the pocket because they do love the art form, but the there are other things that are not as helpful. Yeah. But I know a bunch of like mental health professionals mm-hmm. who have, you know, because I think that that's the that kind of ESP that you have to be able to feel what a, a musical partner is doing, that key it keying into somebody and and where they sit and where they are is something that is um, that many people in our profession have from being collaborate musical collaborators yeah. um, that makes some of that work easier for them to get a bead on somebody and to be able to figure out what the problem is and help them through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are any number of development officers, yeah. you know, like people who just talk about how much they love music and get people excited about it, which like those people are angels Yeah, <laughs> and the therapists, like they're all angels. Yeah. Like, um, but I feel like there's not, I mean, and actually I worked here for a while with a flautist who then worked here in our education department, went into uh, work with a jazz organization. And then she and her husband wrote a a program that was an app that was like a it won all of these awards and got yeah. bought out and like that she's retired now super yeah. you know what I mean like she just like yeah. so and somebody else who's like a, a consultant for Kinsey you know yeah. so there's like there's any number of ways to go like if you're a numbers person there is data analysis that you know how to do from score analysis already you don't maybe know the exact method but you know you know how to do that thing yeah And so there, I, I, you know, we don't do a great job of talking about transferable skills, but I will say if you are thinking about like, if the singing is getting too hard and you are thinking you don't want to do it anymore, you owe it to yourself to like call people up for informational interviews to be like, what do you do in a day? What skills do you need to do this? Um, Because you can still use that. Like, I think so few of us have linear job like my my path sounds kind of linear but like I sold pianos for a year terribly yeah. I worked for an HB, HVAC company for a while and they wanted to promote me and I was like oh no I don't want to do that <laughs> no, you. you know so like I taught at a bunch of places so like there's like I think it is a myth that most people go straight through and if you're tying yourself to that then you're really kind of hamstringing yourself from finding the things that are interesting to you and that's that's the career path is like which projects are interesting? Which people do you want to work with? What kinds of things get you like psyched or maybe even a little scared? Mm-hmm. Like if you're a little nervous and scared, that's probably a good barometer that you're like, that it's important to you. Yeah. That it like that you want to succeed at it. So yeah. that's probably a more helpful. Um, and Leanne, I think one of the things that you were saying in there too, that I, I don't want to gloss over is you mentioned reaching out to people and also as musicians we have these incredible networks people all over that you've bumped into and and part of and we all know so many different things and people and so when you are ready to to have conversations about what's next with music outside of music any of that it's I want to reinforce that we that reach out to your people reach out to people and let them know what you're looking for yes because you know it First of all, because it will help you articulate what it is you're looking for if you have to tell people about it. It can't be that nebulous thing to help kind of (laughs) define like what the things are. And then like everybody loves to be asked questions about like the stuff that they love. Like, so you calling someone up and saying, you love your job. I'd love to learn about it. Do you have a half an hour? Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Like so few people will say no to that. Yes, exactly. You know, so, you know, like, and I mean, you'll get you'll get a return on that more often than you probably will get a return on audition for real. Completely right? agree. I completely yeah. agree. So, Leanna, I this is usually a question. We've had so many good things already come up that I, I like. This is usually a question I ask like right off the bat. But I I I wanted to ask you know what's an intention that you're keeping for yourself, and it might be because you've just come off of you know audition tour and things like that. But this can also be something if it's more personal or. Mm-hmm you know, what is something that, what is an intention that you're keeping for yourself at this point? A great question. So um, 
both professionally and personally, it is a little bit for me about balance. You know, my year is fairly cyclical and it happens. Um, it's crazy in some parts of the year and it's quieter in some parts of the year. And my challenge in both parts is to get on the other side of it a little bit. Like in the summer, I can get caught up in the crazy and not take time for myself when I need it. Yeah. This time of year, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of thoughtful work. It's a lot of detail work. It's a lot of writing. It's a lot of solitary things that I could sit for hours and hours, which is not great for me. <laughs> I mean, I like to do it. Let's yeah. be honest. And if there was like a snack here, I'd be really into it. But like, um, so for me, there's a little bit of trying to manage against type a little bit, you know, like in the summer, I've got to find little blocks of time that I can that I can paint, that I can exercise. Wow. Whereas right now I have a little bit more time to do that, but I find that I don't have the energy because it's dark and it's cold <laughs> and Netflix is great. And so um, trying to keep the, like the projects that are important to me, but and not to anybody else, but they're like my things that I like to do, yeah. making sure that I am actually doing them and enjoying them or like doing a little audit to say like, do am I am I enjoying it still or do I need to find a new thing so that's kind of where I where I am it's a you know it's I think like probably everybody struggles with it and I don't I'm not someone who needs like balance every day I love the kind of like big push of the summer and then like do nothing for a week and a half and recover like I like that yeah I, I'm happy to push myself really hard until something happens and then be like oh god we're done. <laughs> like that I, I don't know that I could work in a like our our cycle is so short and it's very compressed and very exciting but if it like I don't program three years out most of the time so like if I worked in one of those companies where things were much more measured I might miss the adrenaline a little bit yeah you know and I know that you can't we can't talk about you know details for things coming up but I think in a more open macro kind of way what are between now and when things like when you hit the ground for summer what are what does some of that cycle look like? You know, what what types of activities are coming up between now and then? Hey there, divas. Real quick thing before we get back to the rest of this episode. Do you love Studio Class? You can support it now by joining the Sybaritic Camerata on Patreon. It's just at patreon.com slash mezzoenen, M-E-Z-Z-O-I-H-N-E-N. For $10 a month, you can join the listening circle where you get access to bonus episodes, you can make listener requests, and for $20 a month, you can become a Masterclass Scholar. Do you ever wish you could ask our Masterclass episode guests a question? Here's your chance. As a Masterclass Scholar, you're invited to the recording of the Masterclass episodes and you get to ask your questions during an exclusive Q&A after the taping. So come on over, check it out, patreon.com slash and now we're back to the episode. Yeah, so um, there's a bunch. So there are any number of internal processes for the opera company. So uh, contracting, putting artistic teams together, design presentations, uh, hiring choristers and orchestra and all of those kinds of things to like any supers that we need to kind of Mm -hmm. get those and schedule it is endless scheduling because endless if schedule. schedule doesn't work <laughs> nothing works right yeah. you know yeah. so like we have we all everyone in the office has made a a solemn vow to just micromanage the Jesus out of the schedule just to <laughs> see what we can what we can problem solve for now when things are quiet um what we can be thoughtful about and then as far as the larger foundation there's an on sale that happens at the very end of January with everything. There's a presentation that I do with donors a day or two before that, that I've got to write and do the presentation for and film and all of that. So that can go out. There's a lot of copywriting. We do a big season book. So there's a lot of details to pull together, you know, cast and stage management and director's notes and donor recognition and like any number of those things that we have a central place to put them all that then gets spun out into program books and ad tiles and um, signage at the park and signage at the barns and production schedules and all of that. So there's so many 
there's so many things that start to have ticket scales and printing tickets and all of those, uh, all of those things and the budgeting, which is yeah. like, endless. and it's my, one of my, like, I mean, it's so important because that controls that budget controls what you're able to do. Absolutely. Um, but I don't love, <laughs> I don't love it. It's an yeah. important part of my job and I do it and I'm glad to have actual money in that budget to play with for sure. <laughs> no, I don't love the actual act of it. So okay, I do have to discipline the myself. Importance of this. <laughs> yep. I do have to discipline myself to like spend some time with it. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought up money. You know, I think it's one of the areas that we tend to just kind of uh, put some walls up and we don't really talk about in the arts mm -hmm. and, and we do usually kind of in individual ways or on our teams or professional teams and such. Mm -hmm. And I think that because you have this donor meeting coming up, I was wondering if you could just talk about the mindset of, you know, even from the, the macro to the micro of we all have to be in, in a mindset of being able to like ask people to give their resources to what we're doing, you know, and how you've been able to reconcile that for yourself over the time that you've been doing it. You know, you, you have these relationships with donors, but you do, you do have to ask them for money. And so what's that been like for you? Yeah. You know, we are, um, I'm super lucky on a lot of levels because the, the foundation has a, one of the, I mean, I think the best development team in, yeah. in um, nonprofit world there so thoughtful, so open, so friendly. And the opera donors that we have who love the art form really love the art form. Yes. So they are super easy to talk with yeah. because they're they're so invested. And I think one of the things that one of the early realizations is that you know we we all have this thing in common. Yeah. Like we all have so a, a big part of what what I do in those meetings is just share with them what we're doing and how excited I am and what the cool things are about it. And just kind of like, and I think that's something that everybody can do. Yeah. Um, because I think as the artistic folks, that's our job is to get people excited about the artistic product. Um, I do think that it's, you know, it is getting harder to fundraise. It is. Um, and the ticket sales are harder. Like I won't, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Like things are tough. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there is, there also is a fairly big retrenchment of the industry in recognizing artists needs in a different way than they did before yeah. from any number of like financial and personnel and um, communication. Like there are just so many ways that I really feel like the industry is trying to respond to people, mm -hmm. but it is, um, it is a little bit tough to kind of speak, to thread that needle in a way that keeps that allows us to keep our donors invested without feeling exploited while also allowing our um, company to grow at the way they want. And I, you know, like I said, I'm very fortunate. This is, this place is a wonderful place to be, but I think as an industry, we're all doing that dance a little bit. And I'll say too, I think that was it. It was maybe two years ago. And I forget the precipitating event. There was some kind of event where something had happened and I, offered to just sit and answer questions mm, mm -hmm. or, um, and the questions that people had were so thoughtful. And so, I mean, anything from like, are we going to have an industry in five years yeah. to, you know, how do you decide when people get a raise or how do you set a salary level or what does that, what does that look, how, you know, so being able to talk to them about budget agenda to say like, I have this pot of money. Mm -hmm. I have these costs that don't go down like mm -hmm. lumber, steel, mm -hmm. to build the sets, the muslin for the costumes. I have the union uh, membership that yeah. doesn't, that also doesn't go down because yeah. we have collective bargaining agreements. Yeah. So with whatever is left, as I'm trying to figure out who gets a raise, like it, sometimes it can't all happen at once. And I have to do one year or two year, you know, so there is like a, a juggling that happens. Not to say that if I could, would I be like, yeah, I mean, like, yes, of course. But there is, you know, because I also want to be a good steward of the resources that I have. We all know that the opera ticket sales don't cover oh. the cost of doing it. Um, so it is a little bit of, um, you know, just trying to figure out who to, what to have, what happens next, what 
things can happen this year, what things have to wait until next year, yeah. or the year after, those priorities. Um, and that's why the budgeting is so important because that budgeting allows you to determine priorities. Absolutely, right? Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the budget always is a very clear document of where, where our priorities are, what we value, and couldn't be any clearer because that's where like that that's the literal money on. right there. <laughs> you yeah. Know? I mean, and to, like that, the budget and the schedule, like those are the two things that like where you're spending your money and where you're spending your time yep. are the things that will really key you into what's, what's really going on with the company, I think. Absolutely. And I think that goes for us as individuals, you know, in, in our, in our careers and how we think of ourselves as musicians maybe, or, and then extrapolate that to is that your ensemble to your organization to, you know, this, this industry that we're all a part of, you know, where's the money going? Where's the time going? And I think that's such an important way of looking at it. I, you mentioned earlier about the audiences showing up for the art form and the interest in the art form in, in contrast to the number of musicians that we're, we're kind of putting out into the professional field and how that ratio doesn't always look balanced or, you know, in the, um, and I'm, I'm curious if you have more thoughts on that that you'd like to share here. I understand that I'm kind of like encouraging you into a, a tricky area, but I, I care so much about, I think, audience development. It's one of the things that I'm really, really passionate about in, in this life. And, and so I always want to find all these ways where we can really talk to each other and bring our friends, our colleagues, our community members mm -hmm. to, to transformational experiences through music together. Yeah. And I'm curious how, how you're feeling about that kind of as you're looking forward. Yeah. I mean, it is a tricky situation because we obviously are like preaching to the choir, right? We are, we obviously love it. And yeah. so it's, I think it's, it's a question of getting new people in and I'm not like, I think that there's any number of age ranges. I'm not like, I do feel like younger audiences are great, but I feel like there's a whole, when you get to like, mid forties and the kids can like stay home with the, you know, and you can go out and you have yeah. a little bit of discretionary income. That's not a bad thing either. Absolutely. Um, but I do like, I do wonder for people who come, who comes back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I do feel like there are folks who, because opera is a big, is one word, a small word for a very big, very diverse group of experiences. I think there are I think that we've not done a good job. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe we have, but of letting people know how multifaceted it is. Like people wouldn't necessarily say, oh, I hate sports. They might like <laughs> darts. They might like ice skating. They might like curling, you know? There's, there might be something there. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, you if you go to an opera and it's not your thing, yeah. sometimes it's hard to go back because you think, oh, now I don't like any of it. Yep. And the opposite is true if you go to one that resonates with you, mm -hmm. but there's not a really good way to, you know, I keep saying, I wish there was a way to say like, send me your playlist and I'll make a recommendation for like five operas that I think you'd totally. dig, totally. you know, or like, I like yeah. to read these kinds of books. I like these kinds of movies. Yes. Great. Here's my curated list for you. Check these out. Yeah. I do feel like there is a so much out there. That if you're not interested, it, there's, it's hard to know where to start. And especially if you start and you don't love Mozart or Verdi by, you know, like if those are not your things, then you're kind of screwed because like, how do you get in? Yeah. But like, I don't, I, there are so many singers that I know that are like, what is it? That they saw Wozzeck as their first opera. And they're like, that's what turned me on. And I'm like, who takes their kid to Wozzeck? I mean, okay, that's all. I wish I do. <laughs> right. Like, now we know? all ended up here <laughs> right yeah. and so like I mean if but like had that been like Figaro or Cozy maybe you'd be like like yeah. maybe that wasn't your thing do you know what I mean so like I totally. wish there was a way to like thread that needle for people so that you know if they're nervous about it they could like get a little taste of it and be like oh and the thing for me is that I love like the thing that I loved about performing was like being in the middle of all of it and I would love it would be really fun to put people in the middle of that sonic landscape somehow so that they could really feel what we feel like totally. when we're singing because I do feel like that that was a transformational experience for me it was like actually making the noise with everybody and being like 
you know? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I think for us, we've got two theaters and one is very small and we can kind of do whatever we want. And one is monstrous. It's 7,028 seats. Oh my goodness. It's an outdoor amphitheater, but it is the place because there are so many seats that I can keep ticket prices in certain places fairly low. So you can try it for the first time. And I'm going to tell you my favorite Boehm story because it is the best. So it was 2009 and we were doing, it was like my first Boehm here. And it was a great cast and it was a beautiful July day. Like it was like 80 degrees, low humidity, never happens in Virginia in the summer. Like it was a complete anomaly. And we had done rent earlier in the summer. Yeah. So we we're like, you love rent. Come see the show that it was based on. Like yeah. easy. And you know, the cord comes and the hand droops. And these two women were sitting at the back of the lawn, and one of them looks at the other and goes, Wait, they let her die? Evan let her die and all of a sudden I was like not everybody knows how Bowman is yeah we can never leave this theater yes yes absolutely like low barrier to entry yeah I just love that story yes but like you know I mean like we I think we're so in it sometimes that we assume that people have the terminology and we, and because we like the terminology, we use aria instead of song. We use super titles instead of captions. We, you know, like there are, there's terminology that signal to us who our people are, but we can't open that up until we start being a little bit broader with the way we speak about it, I think. Well, and I think you're so right specifically about not everybody knows Boheme is, is I think sometimes when we're in the industry, then then we feel like, oh, of course, everybody knows this one. So we need to, you know, and uh, that's where we start getting like, oh, well, don't program any of these, like, but then people want to see those, you know, you got to like, so that's always part of, I'm sure the programming challenge for what you're, what you're, mm-hmm. you're always trying to navigate that to make sure that you're, you're, you're making it possible for people to engage with opera of all different times, all different styles and things like that. And and being that place where where listeners can can actually engage with it in all these different ways. Yeah. So I'll be honest, I have a I have a neighbor and I invited a bunch of them to a dress rehearsal this past summer. And I mean, I've lived with these like in the same neighborhood with these folks for I don't know, 15 years, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Never been to an opera before. And they came, they all met me afterwards and like they were all like, we're coming back. Yeah. And I was like yeah are you sure and they're like yeah that was freaking awesome and I'm like (laughs) welcome anytime but like you know it was just like they needed they needed a way in yep yep um and I find too like we have a number of patrons who don't come anymore who are like like women who have been widowed and they just don't have a group so like maybe it is like setting up a group to kind of get together or a meetup or something where people don't have to feel like they are doing it by themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There's, I think there's a lot of ways to skin the cat, but you like trying something new all the time. Like, I think there's just a lot of trial and error for each kind of area. I think too, there's, um, there's a lot to say about casting and the way that you do that. I do remember a friend of mine who was grew up in this area and got into theater because he saw a Korean actor on stage at the Flame Center and he was like oh that means I can do it right so I think the other thing is that we owe our communities to be able to say like everybody can be in this art form people in your community are in this art form people in this community are in this art form because it that legitimizes it and also takes away some of that barrier to entry yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I think you're bringing up so many good points in this that I think you're working with so many ways to get people involved. It's like you've got all the logistics of the music itself, right? Of getting getting the productions on stage and like there and available, which is just a gargantuan task in the first <laughs> place, right? Opera is just so unrelenting that way. <laughs> and then and then as part of that work, we're thinking about, oh, we're creating experiences for people, you know? So then all of those extra elements, and they're not necessarily extra to the thing, but when we start to think about it, 
that's what you're thinking about all the time is, yes, all of the logistics of contracts and schedulings and, and making sure that the budget works and then working with your team to figure out like, how do we get people to try it for the first time? How do we get people to come back after they've done it once? You know, what are those things? And I'm just so grateful that you are, you know, you have such a wonderful team that you're all caring about those, each one of those aspects, each one of those elements that you're saying, you know, that obviously we care about artists and we care about this, the production and the quality of the musical work that we're putting out. And then we also want to make sure that everybody that comes through the doors is having a, a positive experience and they want to come back again. You know, we want to make that happen. So kudos to you, which is to say it's a huge job. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. It is, a, it is a fun one. It is a fun yeah. one. I feel like work all the time for sure. I'm wondering if you could tell me, you know, because we've talked about so many different aspects of your job, but if there is a, if there is a, a side of it that you love to teach, is there an aspect that you love to teach other people? That's a great question. Because I don't, you know, I like, it's so funny. I don't, I started as a teacher. I don't do very much <laughs> at all anymore. Um, I do love doing audition workshops and things like that. I think because I think at this point, I've probably heard over 10,000 auditions in my, like, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. and so I have, I have, I have opinion. I mean, and I will also preface this by saying the opinions are mine. Yeah. Like they are, they are definitely my opinions about things. And I feel like sometimes we don't say that enough as administrators, like that, like, like this is what I believe and it is a subjective <laughs> opinion, but I do like, I do enjoy kind of helping people feel more confident and kind of giving some context, especially around the, like around the heartbreaking times when they're like, I did a great audition and I didn't book the gig. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, cause I know how that, like, that just feels like poop, you know, like it's terrible, but there are so many things at play, like even for, for us being able to like everybody that we call back is someone that we're interested in in some way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think this year I've got 21 Feline singers coming yeah. and I think I probably called back three times that many. Yeah. So it's the, and it doesn't mean that like they weren't in the mix, like everybody was in the mix at some time, but was my mandate is to find the most, the people I'm most excited about and to bring as many of them as I can and to choose a repertoire that allows me to do that. So that's kind of my mandate. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you might've sung like the best audition of your life. And I just might not like when the chips fall, I just might not have something of that flavor in my season. Yep. Um, and that's when it's like, that's hard for me too. Like, I hate oh, those. <laughs> like, right, right. Yeah. And you're like, um, oh, that was stunning. And also that's just not the it's not the puzzle piece that fits for yeah. this moment, this one time. I will say that like everybody this year was so gracious too when I had to like send those emails out. They were very like nicer than I probably would have been because I would have been like great thing. Um, <laughs> they're all better people than I am. But I do like I do enjoy that kind of like looking at a looking at an audition package, looking at kind of uh, what, what kinds of places people are auditioned for, how to position oneself strongly for whatever kind of level of house or project that they're looking at. Um, I find that stuff super interesting. Anything from that that you would like to share here? I don't want to get, you know, take away from anything that you do as kind of like proprietary, but, yeah. but anything that feels like, oh, here are some, just some thoughts that I, I want to, I want more singers to hear, you know, as they're, as they're going about their audition experience. Sure. Um, you know, I think the, the couple of things that I might, um, that I might think about is in terms of a starter, it should not be something that you learn new. It should be something that feels really comfortable Yeah. because there's so much else going around that you can't control. Um, and every once in a while, that first aria that you're taking out for the maiden journey is like, awesome but most of the times it's like a pale shadow of probably what it is in the practice room so finding something that you feel really comfortable that allow you to settle into that is really important yeah um I will say there are 
there are compulsories. Like mm-hmm. you, I think the thing that's hardest, and every time I say this, people are like, ah, whatever. Um, <laughs> but you have to sing in tune all the time. <laughs> like yeah, and I yeah. can't do it. I'll be honest, I can't do it. But like in the passaggio, on the coloratura, like that all has to be centered. Yes. And so if you can't center every it, someone note, else can. Yeah. Uh huh. Right. And it is like it is. Um, because I think the thing that's hard, like if you cannot maintain that intonation clearly, I can't put you with an orchestra. That's too big of a risk for me to be able to to figure that out. And there are singers who have come through who have like really been amazing, but have been inconsistent enough like that, that I just was not comfortable. Yep. You know, because when you think about it, we're building a show around like just a few principles. We're exactly. building the, the show. So I've got to feel really confident. Exactly. What I'm asking. Um. And then uh, when you're looking at your rep list, I would encourage you to look at not just the things you sing well, but also to look at it critically as far as what you are showing and what maybe you're not showing. Mm -hmm. Because we can't, as as um, as someone who's hearing you for 10 minutes, you know, and granted, maybe 10 minutes over several years, but 10 minutes at a time. Like if you don't have a high note, I just have to assume you don't have it. If you don't have any coloratura or any Handel or Mozart or Rossini, I have to assume that you can't do it. And I can look at your resume and and get some idea. But if I can't hear you do it, then it probably means that I can't, I can't. Well, you can't bet on it. Yeah. Right. And so there are like, I find that sometimes with, um, especially with lyric sopranos, there are a number of like, they're singing Micaela and they are singing um, Rusalga and they are singing um, like sometimes, but like everything that is kind of the same tempo. Um, and uh, uh, what's it called from Carmen Micaela? I think I already said that, but anyway, you know, like kind of, they're all very similar in tempo, very similar in um, like range, very similar in sentiment, different languages, which we appreciate. Yeah. But what that's, that's showing me that you do one thing really well, but it's not showing me that you have, like, I can't see anything else. So trying to vary. And I know that it's hard with young artists because you are being asked to do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And for some folks like Mozart is not their jam. I get it. But like if Verdi's your jam, but it's too, like, it's too big for you. Like maybe that's not one of the arias that you bring, but maybe you bring an art song as like an additional thing on your list in case someone wants to hear you do like, a very art song because that shows the technique, especially for the like undergraduate and beginning graduate singers. Like that's a good way to kind of show that that's where you think that you're headed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one more, and then I promise I'm going to stop. No. Are you but, kidding me? I'm like, tell me everything. <laughs> but I think, you know, there are like, everyone knows where they fit in their school yeah. or their smaller community and what kinds of stuff they sing. But I would challenge you to think about how you might be seen by a larger organization on a larger scale. Absolutely. I think sometimes people want, like in school, you should, you want to show like the thing that you're working on that's most recent and that's biggest or hardest or all of that. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to see that because it's also going to be the thing that you're probably least consistent on. Yeah. I'm happy to have that on the list yep. to have something that shows me like kind of what you really want to do. Yep. But like, if I, it's a little different than auditioning for a a school program, because I want to see what you can do now, instead Mm -hmm. of what that, like, I'm looking for potential, but I have to, you have to hit a couple things for me to know that I can hire you right now. Um, And so I know sometimes people think it's a cop out to not put like the biggest, hardest thing on their list, but you don't have to. No, I think, I think that's such a great point. You know, I really just want everyone listening to really hear you saying that because it's, I think we get a lot of information about trying to show ambition in things that we're doing, but, but you're getting hired to be technically on a team. And I want to make sure that, you know, like we're showing up and saying, this is what I can reliably provide to this team. And you know, that when you hire me, this is what you're going to get. And we can like, we can crush it together. Right. And, and I just, and I, I think that there's lots of other voices that we hear about how to do this, that, or the other thing. But what I love that you're saying is I want, I want to hire you. I want to hire you. Yeah. And I want to know that, that I can trust that you're going to be able to do this because we've got a lot, a lot riding on this, this choice for this production, you know? And I think, I think that's, 
I just really love hearing you say that from such a caring and generous place and mm-hmm. helping people understand that that's, that's what you're looking for there. And it's, it's not some sort of like, you know, kind of magical, mystical moment. You're saying like, this is what it is. Yeah. I mean, and really like your audition, you're going to show off your best stuff with the stuff that you're most comfortable with. Yeah. yeah. Like we all, we all do. We all like, you can find those different layers of things in an aria that you've been doing for a while, as long as you're like kind of keeping it fresh and really like digging into it. Like every time, like that's, I feel like that's where some of the real magic is made because that piece grows along with you. And the more life experience you have, the more depth sometimes those have, they're more um, specificity of emotion and uh, language that really kind of makes it less of a, audition and more of a performance you know you can like the um we keep a a database of like comments because we hear so many folks and we want to be able to keep them um clear and the people who I'm most excited about have almost nothing in that field because I'm like yeah (laughs) just like oh keep (laughs) no I mean like and that's that's a real testament to those folks who come in and make me forget to do my job yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, That's a, such a perfect way of putting it. <laughs> well, Leanne, I want to be really thoughtful about your time. And I'm so grateful that you that you came on and shared all these thoughts with me. So I have two two questions. We'll do one quick one and then and then one kind of to wrap things up. And my question is, I love talking about micro action where we're able to like break down big things. And I feel like this is your job day in and day out is taking the the whole idea and breaking it down and helping like working with all of your team members to kind of do, okay, how are we going to get from A to Z essentially? Do you have a micro action that you feel like has helped you or helps you currently or has helped you a lot in your career? Something that just like helps you really break it all down into the smallest component. Yep. So I am um I'm a list maker in a big way and I have a specific way of doing um, kind of running lists with like my schedule for the day on one side and the list of tasks that I have so that like if I don't get through them, the next day's schedule is a little lower on the page and I still can see what I have to do. And I keep those notebooks year over year. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So that, you know, like, for example, one of the shows we're doing this year, we've done a couple years ago, many years ago, but like, have I gone back to find that notebook to see what I was stressing about during that time? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so smart. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And I do write everything out longhand. Um, I have all the technology and I do mm-hmm. use a number of um, productivity apps. We use Asana for project management. We use um, a number of like a number of different um, programs, but that longhand writing keeps it either the stuff I need to have in my head, in my head, and the stuff that I need out of my head can be on the paper. So that's been a, that's a, that's a a good analog tool for me. And then I think the other thing is just um, radical candor. Yeah. The micro action, like I just like we talk about everything. If there's any information to share, it either gets shared verbally or on Teams, so that I'm not the only person who knows anything. We see like our email inboxes are completely full because everyone is copied on everything. In yeah. case in case something happens, they can oh. drill back through some correspondence and figure it out, um, or kind of know where we are. So that's that's the other part. We talk a lot. I love that. Can you just, in case somebody hasn't heard the phrase radical candor before, would you just maybe spell that out a little bit more? Yeah. So, I mean, the way that I use it, I guess, is just being, um, being as clear and being as honest and being as transparent as I can. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of striations in our business. There are a lot of traditions in our business and some of them are helpful and some of them are not but when we get into the thick of things we don't have the time to work through things we have to just respond it's very much like whack-a-mole all summer you know something comes up so we have to prepare to get to that place where we can respond and we can't respond well if we are 
worried about injuring somebody's feelings that we're doing, or if we're worried that we don't have enough information to make the call, or if we're scared that if we make the wrong call, we're going to get in trouble. So that's like, we just try to kind of take the emotion out and be really honest and frank with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything from like the projects we're working on to the, Hey, something has blown up at home and I'm going to need an afternoon. Can you cover this for me? Like, there's a lot of, a lot of that, but just there's, um, was it Brene Brown said, um, to be clear is to be kind. Yeah. And I think we all strive to be able to do that because there's a lot of room for misinterpretation when things are going very quickly and, you know, it can hurt feelings. It can cost a lot of money. Like there's any number of things that can happen if you're not. And I won't say that I get it right every time, but it's something I work for. Well, and it's so, yes, as anyone who runs an organization too, you, you can realize that a lot of information can end up uh, sitting only with you. And so you have to have that institute institutional knowledge spread around because it'll do it even if you're if you're just like not thinking about it it'll just start to collect you know just with you and you're like hold on (laughs) yes am I the only one who knows this yeah (laughs) is it only in my inbox is it on my desktop do you not have access to it have you heard have I talked about this before (laughs) and I will say you know during the after the pandemic we had to rebuild the whole team so there was a lot of that the first year or two just being like trying to like rebuild and knowing that like, because I had been here a long time and to, to, to my team's credit too, there are a lot of things that I had done a certain way because we had done it a certain way and they have found more efficient, better ways to do it. So if I hadn't clued them in, or if we hadn't been that kind of team, I would still be buried under even more paperwork. I'm sure. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Leanne, as I said, thank you so much before I let you go. I, I think that curiosity is a superpower. Obviously I run a podcast where I ask people questions. (laughs) And so, and so I think that this just, I don't know, just helps us be better humans together when we're curious about things. And so I would love to know what you're curious about, what kind of gets you excited and open to new information? Uh, You know, I am, um, I will say I love learning things and I'm always curious to know what other people are doing. Um, and I have right now, my obsessions are also it's another podcast. I am completely obsessed with Andrew Huberman and his like mind body stuff. Yeah. And I've been doing a lot of research and and re- reading and writing about um, psychology and therapy, because I think that there's so much of that that was not part of our business in a formal way that I think people are so much more open to now that I'm finding super fascinating. Um, so there's any number of those kinds of, and because I hit 50, so the health and wellness thing for me is, you know, like it's, it's front of mind. So I am doing a lot of reading to see if I can get stronger, faster, better, smarter, better sleep, all of those things. Um, the, the ship may have may have left the dock, but I'm still trying. Yeah, I doubt that <laughs> entirely. <laughs> so. But I will say, like this, I'm like the the um the there was a great um journaling protocol that Andrew Huber, Huberman did a full episode on yeah. that I actually tried and um found it super interesting um and like fairly transformative. Like it was just it was like a four day thing. It was fairly intense, but it was really very interesting. So like being able to like find things that are actually helpful in practice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being a little bit of a guinea pig and trying them out. I kind of, I, I enjoy that too, but I I'm with you. I think the curiosity is the thing that, um, that keeps you flexible and keeps you kind of like engaged with things. So I, I love that. And I love this podcast. So I'm so <laughs> glad that you had me on. <laughs> well, as I mentioned, just, I, I couldn't be more thrilled with your graciousness, with your willingness to share. I know, you know, I'm, I might be catching you in like the slower part of your season, but I still know how busy your business is. So, I, like, so I, I am grateful. I know that the listeners are grateful. Is there anywhere that you would like us to kind of uh, keep up with you or keep up with, keep up, you know, with Wolf Trap, keep up with anything in particular on the internet that you'd like us to keep an eye out for? <laughs> Um, you know, Wolf Trap has uh, some fun social media stuff happening around the holidays. So there we're on Instagram and Facebook. I think Instagram is more my thing. And I have a personal account that people are, are um, welcome to to take a look at. It's actually, um, it's under my little brother's childhood nickname for me. Um, so the handle is Rari. Oh, nice. Uh, so nice. it's not my actual name. It's, you know, it is my face and it is me, but that's, there's not much on there except like dog and cat and 
painting pictures, but um, but that's where I am when I'm not working. Do you want to spell that for it for us really quickly? R R A H R E E. Perfect. Perfect. Awesome. Liam, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, you know, I'm sure that the listeners will hopefully find you on online and tell you how much they also loved this episode. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. It was a joy being with you. Thank you so much for listening to this masterclass episode on studio class. Hey, before you go, do you have a second? Will you take a screenshot of this episode and share it to Instagram with your takeaways? You can tag me there, at Mezzoinen. That's M-E-Z-Z-O-I-H-N-E-N. It makes a huge difference when you share this podcast with your friends. Or even strangers, really. So, with that in mind, I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening!